Welcome to episode four of Capture Q. Today, our guest is Jim Deal, a photographer, video producer, athlete trainer, and owner of Compound Conditioning. This was the first podcast recorded post-coronavirus, so the world is still on semi-lockdown. However, we did speak in Jim's studio. We kept our distance, so the conversation has a little bit of an echo. But as we sit here today, we sit amongst his equipment, his vast amount of equipment, and I hope it helps convey the passion that Jim has about the art of photography and about sometimes waking up at 3 a.m. to do a photo shoot. (laughs) Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me, Tracy. So we're here actually in your studio. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got here into photography? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's kind of an interesting story because like a lot of people, I've always been interested in cameras and interested in shooting. Um, I was always more interested in storytelling than technical photography, but I've also always been a nerdy kind of guy. So I came up in in the strength and conditioning world, so athlete development and I ended up working at a very high level in that. I built the largest strength conditioning program in Canada at UBC, um, as far as varsity is concerned. So I started before there was anything there, designed several gyms, built that up, was a Team Canada strength coach, set national records, yada, yada. But what happened was during those times, I just would always kind of bring myself in to shoot content we needed for whatever was involved, just for the hell of it. So rather than take budget and give it to a photographer, I'd just buy like a camera and just figure it out. And nothing really great ever come out of, came out of that as far as product. It was always like, ah, I should have paid somebody. But you just kind of learn and you always walk around with something. And then years ago, I left my role. Basically, when I created something to the point that I realized I could have just created something that I own, I left UBC and Canadian Sport and launched my own strength and conditioning company that had an emphasis also on high level personal training that was called compound conditioning. I ended up paying a lot of photographers, which is something I was glad to do. It was amazing. Paid a lot of photographers. I really liked and respected to create content for my company, which allowed me to move really quickly, have strong branding, all those things. Eventually I got to the point that I was semi producing those shoots Mm -hmm. and I really started liking producing and I still produce a lot. And so when that happened, there was times also when I just needed more everyday content. And this was before iPhones were like super banger. Now it's like iPhone 10, like let's go or 11 pro yeah, or whatever. You've got your portrait. Yeah. You got your, you got your portrait mode. Let's go. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I eventually invested in just like having a proper professional grade, like a low end professional camera setup that allowed me to do everything I wanted to do and started shooting that. And then I actually had other people in the fitness industry just ask me if I could shoot stuff for them. And I didn't charge that much. Like I think my day rate was like three to $500 or something. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I would shoot like that. And in retrospect, I would have never charged as little as I did because I think now controlling prices is something that people entering an industry should be aware of rather than devaluing pricing. Interesting. Cause I do know a lot of career photographers who they do charge three to 500 still decades in. Yeah. And it's, and no disrespect to anybody as far as where they're at, or some people are so, I've seen people so talented that charge less than me and I won't give their names cause I don't want to lose business, but, um, <laughs> it's kind of like when you start running the numbers, you start realizing that if you're charging three to $500 as a day rate, unless you have clients that are running on retainer, mm-hmm. if you're actually sourcing clients, well, you have an opportunity, you, know, you have a cost acquiring that client and three to $500 basically puts you in a poverty zone 
price property bracket. For sure. So yeah. it, it's just a shame because it sets the norm where people expect to get those kind of rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you create an echelon of photography that's just unlivable. So then every, then you have 80% of photographers living in a zone where they have to have a second job mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to being like, you know, seven fifty a day, right? Yeah. Well, you can take two fifty of that right off the bat and that goes into your marketing or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I can live off this, you know, because mm-hmm. not many photographers are booking 20, 30 shoots a month. Yeah. You know, most are booking five or four or whatever. Exactly. And I think that's kind of an underappreciated, you know, aspect of any creative job is that if you're, you know, let's say you're working a 40 hour work week and doing something creative, that's a different story. But if you're actually, you know, shooting for a day and then doing editing later, and then, you know, there's a day in between and then your next shoot's not till next week, then it's a different story. You don't, you know, it's not by hourly, you're not looking on salary and all that. So. Yeah, it, it was funny, like a long time ago, and I, I love shooting still life and product photography stuff. And people have mixed feelings in that because it's very introverted and can be kind of boring, but I just like technical photography. It's just mm-hmm. something I enjoy. And I like, you know, when you have a series of shoots that are all very human interaction based, and then you kind of go to something where a client basically, you know, you go through the brief and you go through the production and then you, you're on your own for like a week in a studio, in my studio. It's one of my favorite things, but um, yeah, I had a client that basically he had... 15 products he wanted to shoot. And I quoted him so low. I think I quoted like $300. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is like right at the beginning. And he was, he, we had like, we we were good friends or professional friends through like personal training. And it was funny because he came back and he said that price was absurd. And I, I I literally had to like, I I wrote down, I sent basically what my equipment's worth. And I said, okay, fair enough. All you need is a studio, $15,000 worth of equipment. I always shot on high. Like after I got rid of my first setup, I always just bought the best gear I could get my hands on. I was like, yeah, I've got $15,000 camera and lens set up and tripod, lighting, time, editing. And I was like, find someone to do it cheaper. And I would highly recommend you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it just, it was like the first time, which I really kind of just stood up and was like, and then you start running the numbers and you're like, if I didn't own a training company, there's the only reason I did it that cheap in the first place is because you just want to get your portfolio and they end up being in magazines mm-hmm. or whatever, fishing magazines can't go wrong. And, um, yeah, but in retrospect, I was like, if I just got into photography, cutting everything off, and when I'm making a go at making money on this, I would not shoot for less than a thousand a day unless it was special circumstance, or at least people know that's the rate you want to have, mm-hmm. and then you can downgrade it because then you can go. They go, my rate, they, all I can pay is five hundred. You go, well, at least you know my day rate's a thousand. At least you're sitting at a better spot. It's a really weird thing, isn't it? Because when you shoot that much, like if you do have the lower price model. You shoot so much that you get technically good and you create an awesome workflow, mm-hmm. but you also turn something that's supposed to be artistic into like something that I, I personally, and I know some people for every statement you make, there's someone that can fulfill that statement. But for me personally, I try and shoot photos every day, seven days a week. I probably end up shooting six days a week, but on a busy week, I'll probably shoot photos professionally three to four days a week. Some mm-hmm. weeks I shoot none, some weeks I shoot two. But to always consistently wake up in the morning and go into a studio and just be artistic and be creative, that's tough. And there is the idea of, I mean, you're looking at you who's doing in-studio and there's equipment and there's, you know, a huge learning curve, which I kind of want to talk to you about as well. Um, Just the technical aspect of learning everything. But then there is also the photographer who they do daylight and they just go into someone's apartment and they take 45 minutes to do a portrait. It's a different it's totally different product versus editorial. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I do shoot a lot of that stuff. Actually. It's Mm -hmm. funny because 
you know, with everything that's happening in the world right now, I, um, I took a break from photography. I shot mm-hmm. like a ton of street and a ton of personal projects, like stuff I that I'm going to have. Yeah. 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 And I've done some really cool personal stuff that I'm like, super excited not to release because I'm planning on monetizing it in any way, but just to like put out there mm-hmm. because I think that there's, and we can get into this adding to bit. your portfolio, adding to my portfolio, but more importantly, like adding to the way I approach photography. I just think anything, like if you're going to just do something because you want to make money, then just get into some sort of finance. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just go after the money. If you're like, I don't love this, then just get go after something that's going to make you a lot of money. Absolutely. And I just don't have that kind of attention span. So I've always made sure that with photography, I didn't burn myself out. Yeah. So I could always have, I've got a couple other businesses that are not as involved with my personal time, my business partners on them. So that allows me to be really focused on producing. And even with producing, when I, when photography really blew up, I took a big break from producing. I didn't produce anything for six months. And now I'm getting, you know, now more I'm, I'm super excited about kind of mixing the both and mm-hmm. maybe even getting into directing on that front so when we when we talk about producing that's that's short films and small documentaries yeah or... i've never done any scripted work so i've never okay. done any i've never done short films but yeah i i basically want to become or want to push more becoming a documentarian mm-hmm. i always screw up that word but no, <laughs> <laughs> um but that kind of goes back to what we we're talking about the photo thing it's like there's a time and a place where a client just wants you to take an amazing photo mm-hmm. and that's great. And I think, you know, working as hard as you can and everyone's got a different version of what an amazing photo is. I know, I know like, well, you know, you're a great photographer, Tracy. And if you and I both took photos of the same thing, I guarantee people would have a hard different. time figuring out that those were the same time and place in life. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. we would, we would make something totally different. And I think that's one of the great things I've sat down and looked at other people's work that take way different photos than I take. And I'm like, damn, I love their photos. I don't think I'll ever take a photo like that in the near future, mm-hmm. but I still love it. And it just depends on what kind of kick you're on and what you're ingesting. I shoot digital and analog. 95% of what I deliver to clients is digital. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, I'm sure we'll get into that. There's reasons behind that, which every, like I'll go on kicks of like, I love this type of photography. And then I'll see someone's work and listen to them speak and then your views get changed. And then all of a sudden you want to go and shoot on your medium format film camera for two weeks. And then yeah. you're like, I'm so sick of this. this is stupid. I can just do a digital image. But, um, yeah, I, I just think that's kind of the cool part is like, I'm trying in life to be as, to avoid anything that segregates people. Mm-hmm. And I work with a lot of people and I'm around a lot of people that shoot differently than me and have different views. Like an example is, you know, my studios in the downtown East side. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've, I've done during this whole, you know, Corona thing is I've spent a lot of time shooting street portraits. And I think, I think shooting portraits of people without their consent is fine a lot of the time, but I think there's something off putting about doing it to people that are in a time in their life that they're just really ashamed of or not proud of or a transitional Absolutely. period or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're in a zone where like, I've gone to other countries plenty of times and taken street portraits of people that didn't maybe want it taken. And somehow I justify that a little bit more, but you know, in this neighborhood, every time I talk to so many different people with different levels of success and turmoil and triumph and whatever in their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I have so many street photos I've taken, but every time the narrative is always, I'll sit and talk with someone for 10 minutes and then yeah. be like, Hey, you mind if I take your photo? I was actually like a couple months ago, I was doing that. I was like coming back. I always had my camera on me. I was coming back from like the supermarket and I was chatting with some guy for a bit and I was like, Hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm a photographer, by the way, do you mind if I take your photo? And he's like, well, do you have any money? I was like, fair. I was like, all I have is a Nanimo bar. 
So I had to trade my Nanaimo bar and I love Nanaimo bar. <laughs> and it was just the funniest interaction. I was like, yeah. sick. And I, I love the, I love the photo and you know, it actually might be a print that I try and sell or whatever, but it was just so funny because, well, and, and I think also like when some people have very little, mm-hmm. like for him, it wasn't about getting paid for him. It was about like, well, now you're getting something out of the situation. Absolutely. And I have no issue with reciprocating that. I had another guy I shot who's really well known in Gastown. Everyone calls him Cowboy. His name's Matthew. And we shot the shit one day. And um, he let me take, like, you know, I was like, oh, shoot a photo. And he let me take a bunch of photos, whatever. And then we kept talking. I was probably with him for like 20 minutes. And then after I left, and he was like, oh, do you have like any, like, city's dry right now. Do you have any spare money? And I was like, no, I don't. But I'm going to go grab money. I'll be back. And I came back and I didn't see him. And I saw him like three days ago. And I was like, dude. And I pulled out a five and I was like, man, like I tried to find you. And he's like, whoa, Jim, like I can't believe you did that. Yeah. And I was like, it's fair. It's an interesting point that you bring up because I actually interviewed a, a filmmaker and, and she brought up the idea of when the overdose crisis first hit, she noticed that all of the photography was just shot from afar. People too scared to go near shooting, you know, some feet hanging out of a tent or whatever it was. And, and she said, you know, this, this doesn't humanize it. It doesn't exactly. show who they are. But she said, go, go talk to them, go take their photos up close. And I want to, I want to hear that story. I want to see that story. Yeah. I was walking down the street and I saw a photographer and the only thing I could tell about them is, is that she had nice gear. So she had like a Canon 5D nice lens. I was like, okay, that's probably someone who's, you know, they made a significant contribution to being a photographer. So that's probably someone that's shooting something mm-hmm. professional. And she was kind of hidden behind a car and she was shooting a guy that was lying and passed out on the street. Mm-hmm. And I did what no one should ever do, which is have a conversation with the person next to you about how shitty it is what someone's doing. Yeah. Where yeah. I was like, basically like people shouldn't do that. You know, <laughs> when in reality I should have just gone up to her and go, <laughs> you can still take this photo, but just go interact with the person because mm-hmm. it will also change the way you shoot the photo mm-hmm. or at the very least, maybe this person's family doesn't know they're there. And then they run into this photo of them passed out on the street when, and how horrific would that be? Yeah. And, and the way I look at it is like, if you, there is different types of street photography and kind of the way I look at it is like, you know, voyeurism, yep. which there's some amazing photographers that do that. And I find a lot of them that do that focus more on structures and shadows and things like that. There's like mm-hmm. the Vancouver classic of like someone with an umbrella, mm-hmm. the red umbrella that stands out in a sea of black. Yeah. And I mean, have you seen Bill Cunningham, New York, the documentary about the no. street street fashion photographer? Um, totally different story, obviously. He's shooting wealthy people going to fashion events. Um, oh but, yeah, yeah. But again, it's it's a different, entirely different genre. It's not they're not doing portraits. They're not doing, you know, it's just to show the photos or the clothes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I want to talk a little bit actually about how you shoot people and the idea of connecting when someone may be nervous or they're, you know, how how is it that you get that shot that they don't look, you know, like a deer in headlight. Yeah, that, that's, it's funny because I was just having this conversation with someone regarding some client work. It's really interesting because I spent so much time working with people and working with athletes one-on-one. I feel like that translated pretty well. Ah, that makes so sense. I felt that even before I had the ability to take a decent photo or a, a great photo of somebody, I could at least make them comfortable. Like mm-hmm. my first in-studio photo shoots, the model walked away like we just cured cancer. And then I... <laughs> was I felt the same. And then I, you know, started editing the photos and I was like, wow, I'm really good at talking and making people excited. But <laughs> <laughs> like this person was comfortable. They did their job. 
my job could have been done better. Of course, um, it's a learning curve, though. You're always it's a learning curve, yeah. And I, I feel fortunate that I've got that background that allows me to connect with people and do that. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm able to take the quality of photo that matches that, which makes me very happy. Yeah. And I really feel like the photography that I really want to get into, you know, you, you have different things in photography. You have the photography that makes you consistent money. And then you have your campaign work, which is the stuff that you strive to professionally. But then you also have the work that you may never get paid for, which is sometimes the stuff you love the most, you know, of course. Some and that's, people, that's any art too, right? Like yeah. painting or anything. It's We always romanticize the artists that we look at who just shoots one type of thing and they're rich and drive a Ferrari and travel the world <laughs> and get the cover. They of have many things that they probably do on the side that no, you know, reasonable quote unquote person would ever accept as, you know, an assignment. Totally. Yeah, totally. And like, I still have accepted assignments that, you know, some of my, so I mean like something they would shoot that, uh, you know, a photo editor might say, what is this? You know, take, get this out of here. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I, I was, cause I was supposed to go to the middle East right when this all started mm. and I was talking to a good friend and they're like, well, what's your dream photo? And I was like, well, this isn't going to happen on this trip. And a lot of, I've done years ago, a lot more adventure traveling. And then I traveled with my partner at the time for so long. So we didn't, we still did a lot of really cool stuff. It just wasn't as extreme that I wanted to go. And and I just feel like as like a person with my personality, that kind of photography would have to happen with me by myself. But essentially like I was like, yeah, I would love to go through Eastern Turkey and pay someone who's basically an ex-military guide and take me through and shoot photos. Like I would be the person that would want to shoot someone Mm -hmm. who does reprehensible things or hear their stories to why they do it. Like I would shoot, you know, and those are, those are kind of the photos that you look at and you're like, well, like when you look at Platon and he interviews dictators and shoots their yeah. photo. Mm-hmm. And I, I've heard people in other contexts go like, Oh, I can't believe that person shot that person's photo. And I'm like, yeah, but sometimes they're doing such a justice to the world by either bringing humanity to the situation or actually showing people that this person is, you know, maybe worse than anybody thought or whatever, at least telling their story. Of course. Yeah. And, and you can't completely just kind of pretend someone doesn't exist and getting close to them is part of how we learn about the world. Yeah. Like those like Putin photos are just so powerful. Like when you look mm-hmm. at or Gaddafi and you look at the photos mm-hmm. he took of that and they're, they're powerful photos. And I always wanted to, I, I, I just love portraiture and I've gone through kind of a lot of different phases, especially in the last two years of different types. Like you do the, like, you know, you only shoot beautiful women for a while and you get obsessed with that. And then you realize a lot of the stuff you shot was mediocre and maybe a little bit flat Yeah. or, yeah. you know, maybe lacked some real substance and then you kind of get into shooting this or getting that and then everything kind of meshes together. But I think, um, I think it's cool how those things are like such a journey. Like you can relate mm-hmm. it to anything. You can relate to sculptors or for skateboarding. Sure. Or I want to ask you about the idea that because you're probably the only one that I know that, has listened to and read and consumed so much about photography. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know that, you know, we know each other from years yeah, ago. And yeah. We just, you know, you, you've always dove into a subject, but talk a little bit about that and how that's improved your photography or, you know, helped you learn a little bit more about yourself and what you want to do. What, what are they? I'm sure you probably know this term where it's the less, you know, about something, the more confident you are. Mm-hmm. And then it's basically like a U mm-hmm. curve. Yeah. So it takes you, you know, the first year or two, you think you're an expert. And then for the yeah. next 20, you don't. And then the next forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're actually an expert. I think yeah. almost initially, it's nice to have that false confidence because you of really course, can, you can yeah. pitch and go for it. And if you've got those sales skills, you can get into stuff. And I got into situations where I ended up taking great photos sometimes. And yeah. 
you know, you, because I didn't have that confidence because I didn't know enough to know mm-hmm. that I wasn't very good. <laughs> As everyone, I As mean, everyone. No, no writer looks back on their work. And I, someone told me it was, I can't, I can't read any other of the, no, any of the novels that I've written before because it's just mortifying or it's some quote that they said. Yeah. Like, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And you, you kind of look at that and, and what I really got excited about and was like the narrative of how people got to where they got and how their process was shaped. There was a lot of photographers that I really liked that I just didn't care about shooting like them. Mm-hmm. And, and initially I shot everything. Like I'd be like, I'm going to go for two weeks to the States and just shoot landscapes. And I did that stuff or I would go yeah. here and just want to shoot this. And, and that's about learning what you like, right? You have to almost do everything to figure yeah. out what is it that I actually want to spend more of my time on. And certain types of photography make you better at specific things. Mm-hmm. Like I think shooting landscapes is so valuable because shooting good landscapes is really hard. Oh yeah. You know, like Mm -hmm. you learn so much about dynamic range and composition and, you know, a lot of time wide angle lenses and just being at the right place and how weather patterns affect everything. Like everything kind of comes Mm -hmm. into play and you learn a lot about that. And that kind of goes into campaign because a lot of campaign stuff, you want that negative space. So sometimes you end up shooting basically landscapes with a cyclist that takes up X percent for whatever company. Um, But now I have such a small interest in shooting that like, I'll go, I'll, I used to be like, okay, landscape day. I'm going to take out this big camera setup. And now I'm like, iPhone's probably fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is funny. I, a lot of people ask me why I don't bring my camera around as much as I, as I, or whatever that I don't do. And I notice how much I shoot flowers on my iPhone because I'm like, well, what is it DSLR going to do? That's... And, and what are you going to do with that flower photo yeah. at the end of the day? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like you go through, I, the first photographer that I was really obsessed with was Paton. Yeah. I remember that. And I probably like him more than ever because I realize how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Anybody who becomes so successful at basically using a very similar formula every time, mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly challenging to remove variables and still be really good at something. Yeah. Do you want to just quickly hear for people who don't know, describe oh, him and his style because he uses a lot of. Uh, he's an Italian photographer and if I'm wrong on any of this for fact checkers don't kill me but um (laughs) he's a photographer who's to me he's like very fundamentally Italian you know he's he's a a bit of an extravagant person he's very he seems very extroverted Mm -hmm. and he got some opportunities early a long time ago shooting and he does portraiture very simple because he does a lot of in-studio work right he almost shoots the exact same setup he shoots on his Hasselblad Mm -hmm. Um, I think a 500 CM, he shoots one of two end lenses. I think he shoots either a 24 or like a 90 right around those focal lengths. Mm-hmm. So very interesting focal lengths. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't sit at the 35, 50 range and, um, which is typical for portraits, which is typical mm-hmm. for portraits. Um, but yeah, I think he does a lot on 90. I could be wrong, but I know he does a lot wide, like 24 or even wider. And essentially his whole work is very subject based. It's usually black and white. It's usually high contrast. If it's not a black and white, it's usually very interesting color grading. Like he usually goes like blues mm-hmm. where like it's not overly saturated. It's, yeah. it's like a few steps away from being a black and white, but basically I don't know, 50% of time covers were his, like he shot yeah. every world leader, every dictator and his stories. He really got going. I think it was a, it was some sort of global summit of world leaders. And I forget exactly what, but essentially he, he, he had an opportunity to, to set up a photo booth. And when he set up the photo booth, he had this line of world leaders lined up. And I think that's what changed his career. He couldn't believe how many 
leaders that were at war with people were waiting in line to have an opportunity Together. to shoot with this guy. Wow. And this is obviously before the mainstream photography where anyone could take one. And then he just became that guy that shot everybody. There's a, there's that abstract series on Netflix. And one of, in the first season, there's an episode about him. Oh, okay. And he's talking to, um, Powell, what's his name? The, Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Yeah. He was talking to him and they were talking about some sort of incident. And he has the same Apple box that he uses. Oh, wow. Everybody sits on. And he's, he's like, you know, Gaddafi sat on that before you. And it was like a funny <laughs> moment because you realize the intensity that guy has in the room wow. and he only deals with these crazy personalities. But yeah, his stuff's super simple, but obviously yeah. he has developed the best team around him. So everything just looks so perfect. Yeah. But I think there's something really interesting about someone that can shoot or do anything so consistently. Like whenever I see anybody in an artistic realm that has such a minimalist style and that can, mm-hmm. how do you not get bored with that? How do you not? Mm-hmm. And I love all his work. I, I don't think he's taken a, an over. I've never seen a published photo by him that I wasn't overly impressed by. And then I look at someone who's the exact opposite, which is probably someone who's also on that same level, which is Annie Leibovitz. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of her work for numerous reasons. But one of the biggest reasons I'm a fan of her work is it's evolved so much. It's very, if you don't know photography and you had 30 of her fo- photos lined up from over 50 years, you would never think they're from the same person. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Right? Like, and she does a lot of editorial. I remember in her masterclass, she mentioned every day, pick up the New York Times and look at the photo on the cover. Yeah. And the cool thing is that you see, you know, she obviously does all the stunning celebrity photography, very produced, you know, for Vanity Fair. It's, it's gorgeous. But then she'll have a woman sitting on her bed, backlit, and yeah. it's equally as, as just impressive. It's, it's so cool because like I, like, I, like a contrast would be, well, there's, you know, she started out shooting for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. when she got an opportunity to follow the Rolling Stones around. Mm-hmm. And some of the photos that came out of that are so iconic. One, which is um, Mick Jagger with the towel on his head. It's, it's shot. It's either, I think it's shot through the doors of an elevator, but uh-huh. it's an out of focus photo. It's not really framed that well, Yeah. but it's so raw and primal. Exactly. And then if you go to like modern work, like, Kendrick Lamar cover of GQ. They are okay. completely different yeah. styles of photography mm-hmm. in both of them. You look and, and I think a lot of it is well, one. I think she's been through a lot of bullshit as a human. Of course. Like just, you know, Oh, you would have to deal with so many egos and so many other people who have so many other demands. I just couldn't imagine being, yeah, being a, you know, being a woman going in that industry at that time. Like it, it just, it, she must have a thick skin and, a lot of people at her level, she gets labeled as hard to work with and things like that, but it really doesn't stop people from working with her. So mm-hmm. she must be doing something very well. Um, yeah. And I, I think those are kind of like two ends of the spectrum. And then there's, there's a million people in between that everyone like populates. Like I've got a lot of friends that well, not a lot. I've got a few key friends that shoot really high level editorial and campaign stuff. Mm-hmm. And that style is more like a modern day example of someone who does that really well. It's like a Joey L or something. Yeah. People love that guy's work. And it took like, obviously you look at his work and you know how good that photographer mm-hmm. is, but I was never drawn to it. So let's explain to him. So he's, he's a young kid who, sh- who was shooting album covers. And then I guess. I don't know how he came up, but I think what he's something. probably mid thirties right now. Yeah. But he, he's quite young and he just, I think it was that someone noticed an album cover that was just, you know, a small band that I could be mixing this with someone else. <laughs> Forgive me if I am, but anyways, being discovered and then kind of just explodes. And now he's shooting for what is it, Canada goose in Alaska all the time. Or, yeah. Or like, hmm. 
and, and I, I like the fact that he brings production to remote areas. Yeah. Like he'll shoot like a tribe in Africa and have a lighting kit. Um, how do like, it must've been three days to get there from New yeah. York. And then how, where's the lighting? Where's your team? Yeah. Like, I'd love to see the BTS on that. And, mm-hmm. and it's so Anyways. cool. And like, I think, I think that brings another like interesting topic, which is like the whole gear thing. Yeah. So I did want to ask you about the gear. So I know that you, you got really interested in so many different types of cameras and also lighting was a huge interest for you. And I think that is interesting because as you know, I'm not as, I don't shoot with lights. I have, but I don't typically. And I would just genuinely like to know more about lighting um, and your interest in that. It's interesting because the first photographers, the first photos I loved and still some of my favorite are photos that aren't something you see with the human eye. Okay. Right. Like, Like you wouldn't, you don't look with the human eye and end up having a view of a platon photo. Mm-hmm. You know, you have something with a much more compression, something much more like you just, you just don't view things like that. You know, like there's not this extensive lighting. There's not these, you know, this, this tremendous amount of negative space. However you create that. And a lot of it would happen. Just from, different angles too. Like yeah. Different angles. Like a lot of it, like I shot something recently um, where I shot the subject really low and their kind of feet were in the way. And, you know, the head was still clearly the focal point, but you almost, I almost framed it with them crossing their legs. So like that face was framed between the foot and the knee. Cool. And I did it as a black and white where like, sometimes I like to do like, you know, very like high contrasty black and whites. And I just enjoy that. But it's really interesting because when I got into it, the first thing I realized, I, I spent a ton of time traveling and just shooting photos and shooting street photos. And I loved it, but I just got really bored shooting normal photos. Like I just, especially before I had any sort of eye for photography, I just wanted to create things that were different. And also I realized that if I wanted to make any money in photography, if this is something I actively wanted to pursue the money word, which some people consider is like blasphemous to talk about that. But I think everybody should eventually really have a real conversation with themselves as to, are they going to be able to monetize this? And is this Mm -hmm. something they should put all their time and energy into, or should they make it a hobby that consumes their life instead? Absolutely. Um, But yeah, I just, I realized that if you, my dad always said, if you want to be successful at something, do the things others don't want to do or it's annoying for them or it's too hard. Or, so I just right away went and bought a professional lighting setup and started learning it. And, mm-hmm. you know, even figuring out what kind of lighting you want and yeah. how are you going to do that? Like originally I just bought like 600 watt flashes, which is like super overkill. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. like, Oh, you need to be able to block out the sun. I'm like, <laughs> okay. I never really ended up blocking out the sun with those things, but, uh, oh, um, but, uh, yeah. Like, and then I started, I love the nerdy side of it. I just love, I love that. I love understanding yeah. specs and all these things. And when I started, I set up a studio in my home at the time. And then I started renting studio space. Mm-hmm. Then I eventually approached the person who was running the studio or was their studio. And I became like a third partner in the studio. And that's the position I'm in now. Wonderful. Where I'm in a really fortunate position because, you know, the guys in the studio, the two other guys, they run their own company. They're really they're really business savvy. They produce a lot of cool content. They also produce a lot of content that's very marketing focused, which they do a really good job on, but it also brings that element to my life a little bit more. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like originally I didn't really want to shoot campaign stuff. I just, I wanted to shoot like abstract kind of human stuff because I think the most fun you can have is hanging out with somebody shooting Yeah. like one-on-one and just even having photo assistants. Sometimes it just can be a nuisance because my day rates aren't high enough that I get like, ideally your photo assistant knows more than you do about the Mm -hmm. things, certain things, right. And you're just paid for your, your eye and your composition and all those things. But Mm -hmm. 
now I find every time I've had a photo assistant, I'm basically just like moving quicker than they are. Cause I'm a very aggressive person. So I've been like, oh, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Um, but yeah, I originally shot with Canon and then I got into Fuji when Fuji started making those great systems, like their X system. And then, um, I was shooting for a project, uh, a doc that I was producing overseas in France. And mm-hmm. I was also shooting stills on it. And I just found shortcomings of the system. It just wasn't enough. So then I switched to Sony, which like their high resolution system, their R series at the time stuff. Equipment is so good now that it didn't, it didn't used to be that you'd shoot with zoom lenses all the time. Now you get like a G master zoom or like an L series zoom from Canon. They're just so sharp. And unless you're someone that shoots super shallow or shoots in super low light, but yeah. And you get into these systems and they're just unbelievable. Like people talk about not being gearheads and I get it. Some people shoot completely manual focus. But if you're shooting an e-commerce campaign and you've got eye autofocus in studio with a great set of strobes, like it just, your workflow is like, it takes you half as long. Mm-hmm. You, you can literally shoot in half the time and it, it's a really nice thing. But then also what happens is you kind of go through stages where you plateau skill wise. So then you get really focused on the tech because you're like, oh, maybe I didn't take that photo because I didn't have enough megapixels. Well, we've all always had enough megapixels. <laughs> There's not been a so problem. To, yeah, totally. You know, like, and, and I've done that. I've gone out and bought a brand new camera because I've been flatlined because I haven't been like excited about shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's worked. Yeah, of course. I use that camera every day after that, and yeah. didn't get burnt out again for. I spoke to a documentary filmmaker who he said that he used to. He started out with his own camera, and he goes, "Now, I mean, every single." film set is a different camera. So I have to learn a new camera all the time. So he just doesn't even have a preference anymore. It's just learning. You always, you're shooting with something different all the time. Do you want to talk about before we, we, um, I forget about this, but the, let's talk a little bit about that film in France, because that was an incredible story. Do you want to give a little kind of a, yeah. So I produced, you know, a bunch of smaller commercials and then I had a friend of mine. We weren't close at the time, but we're close now a guy named Kelly Jablonski and he essentially was like a big figure in the skateboarding industry. And, um, he got in a horrible plane accident, eight people in a plane. They're going to Kelowna for like a business meeting plane goes down at like 200 kilometers an hour, 203 kilometers an hour. I think the pilots both died. He got out of the, well, he was in the plane for eight minutes, basically burning alive and he got pulled out of the plane. So he went through this intense, you know, the rehab and everything was mind blowing. He wasn't supposed to survive. He wasn't supposed to do this. Half of his back's fused. He broke like a third of the bones in his body and he got into cycling. And that's kind of, he was always cycled before, but he just put all of his time and energy into cycling. And he became like mm-hmm. a top Canadian cycler in his discipline, which is, you know, climbing and a lot of solo riding. And he did a race in Europe called the Hoyt route. And that's the biggest, you know, labels amateur, basically the non tour oh, wow. race. And, we wanted to, it was a year where he was in like this phenomenal shape and it was perfect timing with, you know, how far it's been since injury. And he became the first Canadian to ever podium at that race. Oh wow! And so, and that's insane. It's, it's a seven day race, but I forget the exact metrics because it's been about a year and a bit since we made that. But essentially you're doing a couple kilometers of vertical climbing every day over like 180 kilometers minimum. Wow. And they did that for seven and how days straight. Old is he at this time? He at the time was 42, I want to say. Wow. But yeah, we were able to, Brian Cassie directed it. So I produced it, which means I 
found the story, got approval on the story, found a director, built a team. We operated pretty small crews, but, you know, up to like five, six people. Overall, probably 15 people were involved in the production of that, including like post-production. But yeah, shot for a week in Europe, shot for about a month over here. Cool. And it was just, it was one of those things that like to tell a story you actually care about. Yeah. It's a pretty phenomenal story. Yeah. It's something that's like, it's just so powerful. Yeah. And his mental perseverance and, you know, he's such a positive guy. And yeah, it was just really cool. And I think a big part of it is, you know, we've all been through shitty times and his perseverance through those times is one thing, Mm -hmm. but also his ability to switch gears. No pun intended on the bike thing, (laughs) but it's, you know, very much so going from a CEO of, you know, one of the biggest distribution companies in skateboarding to a cyclist who doesn't even have a skateboard on his wall Yeah, and shift those gears. It, it was quite interesting. It was also interesting that, you know, he was very adamant that that was the narrative. Okay. You know, it was much yeah. more bike centric, cycling centric than it was skateboard centric. Yeah. I didn't know he was a skateboarder. That's interesting. Yeah. It was super interesting. Like he, you know, back in the day when, when new spot was new spot, <laughs> right. This is a skateboard spot a, in Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. And then you kind of realize what goes into like now when I see someone who's made these crazy, like we're talking about the Michael Jordan doc that everyone's yeah. going crazy over. That's 10 episodes. That's 10 hours. Yeah. Like you look at the manpower that must've gone into that. And yeah. in terms of just documentary filmmaking, because you are interested in it and you yeah. will probably get into it more. So like more and more as you go on, but what I find, especially as, you know, being a journalist and you go and you interview, you know, one main person, 10 other people, you have so much content and then you have to narrow it down to under 2000 words or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're lucky, maybe 5,000, <laughs> but there's so much more that doesn't make the cut. So I find what's neat about Netflix and all of these, you know, Hulu and what have you is that we can now have those 10 part documentaries that they wanted to, you know, originally the producers would say, we've got to cut. 90% of this. And how do you do that as a filmmaker? It's hard. It's insane. I actually just started producing right before the COVID thing hit. I started producing a doc. That's, it's actually funny because, you know, I thought about that a lot. And like anybody who wants to see the best stuff probably ever made, go watch anything Ken Burns has ever produced. Or and it's like, and he was doing the 10 part series for a while, which is his neat. Vietnam series. Incredible. That's like Absolutely. 18 hours of content or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like a, and and did such I, th- I think it, he was the first one to have a translator in the ear of each you know because he interviews the Viet Cong as well as the American soldiers yeah. and it was real time translation which apparently hasn't been done before in in those type of documentary well, I didn't know filmmaking that. yeah so so it was just so much more raw in that way the hearing what they had to say on both sides was incredible you know the docs that we've really been shown in like the early 2000s the one that got big mm. like the michael moores and whatever oh yeah and you know don't get me wrong like the guys <laughs> errol morris <laughs> yeah like these are people that are they're great, incredible but... they're great filmmakers but they always have a narrative that they're trying to prove of course yeah. and it's really interesting to listen to like a ken burns like i've never you know again somebody might prove me completely wrong on this but i've never walked away from anything he's made gone oh that guy had a like it always just seemed like course, one side yeah. of the story other side of the story mm-hmm. um the Oliver Stone, what is it called? The real America or the true American history. history yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. was just so balanced in a way. Like it takes a lot of balls to be balanced because yeah. you're not appealing to anybody Yeah. or maybe you appeal to everybody. But like, I just, it's so easy to make a guns or bad doc and get anti-gun people on of board, course, yeah. but to make something and be like, and that's why probably all of this stuff's yeah. made by PBS. 
Oliver Stone's interesting just on that, the history of, I forget what it's called. We'll, we'll look it up, but interesting thing about him. He came, it was, he was premiering it here at, at the Rio, I think it was, but that man just rambles. He goes on and on. And he, the Q and a at the end of it, it was just nonstop, even what he knows and probably what he wanted to put into that 10 part or whatever, 12 part series that was. I couldn't even, it was probably so much he had to leave out. Well, mm-hmm. this is kind of a side tangent, but that's yeah. how I talk. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people that I think are really talented filmmakers are, are pushing this narrative of like, we're going to make COVID specific docs. Interesting. But is anybody going to want to, I, I, I'm not saying they won't because I think these mm. people, these people are so talented. They'll probably make extremely compelling stories, but, but are you going to want to go back and watch what people did at home during this? Yeah. I don't, and, and it kind of goes back to like what I was talking about with the street photography and kind of, and everybody wants to go in a different direction. Some people I know create stuff that has such amazing visuals that I'm just blown away. I mean, as far as like video production mm-hmm. and they also tell good stories, like I'm not, not belittling any of that. But when I, when I look at making like the next project I want to make, I'm so unconcerned. Like I want to tell a story that's raw and almost a story that other people didn't have the balls to go after because you had to go to some remote remote location or you had to sit and just talk to people that scare other people. You know, everyone's got their kind of angle. And I think that's such a cool way to go. Like the other day I found out that Oppenheimer park, you know, Oppenheimer parks now becoming, becoming a park again. Mm -hmm. And I realized that was my last day and I was like, shit, I got to go there and just start talking to people (laughs) because if I don't shoot it now and I was kind of blown away because to my knowledge, I don't know if anyone's ever just gone in there and shot photos and talked to people about their stories. I know uh, Ben Nelms. He's a Vancouver photographer. He shoots for CBC. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think him, there's a few who do, and they do it really well, um, but it's often on assignment for Globe and Mail or CBC yeah, or whichever yeah. it is. Um, but, yeah, in terms of – there's another fellow, um, Ian – what's his last name? Anyways, but uh, pe- people are – everyone does it their own way, right? Yeah, and, like – because sometimes, like, I'll take, like, a very mediocre photo that anyone could have taken, but I took it in a circumstance that very yeah. few people would put themselves in. So mm-hmm. I like that photo more than, like – of course. A great photo in an average circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's been a lot of interesting interviews lately that I've listened to that are talking about how like the glamorization of shooting is, is mm-hmm. happening is such a thing. And the way we perceive photos is happening so differently. People are so obsessed with the perfect photo now. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went for a while where I just wanted to shoot pretty people. Like I just wanted to have a beautiful subject for sure. You know, and yeah. I, I don't mean, Someone else isn't beautiful. I just mean we can all look at someone who's super yeah. hot and be like, that person's super Asymmetric hot. Asymmetric or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, try and mm-hmm. take a pic- bad picture. If you're someone who shoots like an Angelina Jolie, like of it's going to be, but I realize that like you just kind of end up in this loop of just trying to make pretty photos. And I just, mm-hmm. in my personal opinion, it's, it becomes such like a fruitless endeavor of just like shooting like a pretty person yeah. because there's not as much of a narrative behind that. And, and listening to photographers now talk about how the fact that like, well, said, well, someone said today in an interview I was listening to, he said, look at the top 100 photos of all time. None of them are even close to being technically perfect. Mm-hmm. And now we've got to have the perfect size ass and lips or mm-hmm. the guy's got to be in the right suit or have the best abs. Yeah. Or I think there, there are definitely two different worlds in that because if you're a photo editor, you're looking at, you know, who is winning photo contests it's always going to be something so unique and different because can you imagine being a photo editor, seeing the same photo every time, eventually you're going to want something 
unique and, and odd and different or that goes against a traditional rule. You're going to want to find something. Yeah. So there, there's definitely, if you're really into photography, you don't get the perfect, you know, or you can avoid seeing the perfect all the time. But if you're just looking at magazine covers, of course, it's way too, you know, it's absolutely what you're talking about with the very clean and glamorous and yeah. You know, I don't know if, I think we've spoken about this, but I think a lot of photographers and a lot of producers and a lot of marketing people have this conversation is the tough thing is, well, one, if you're shooting photos for a client, unfortunately, a lot of the times the photos you like, the client doesn't like. Of course. So yeah. you deliver and you're like, oh, yeah. here's my five selects, but here's a contact sheet with whatever. Of course. And they're like, I like these. And you're like, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> those yeah. are the ones. Well, and everyone looks at something different, right? Like some people are looking at, you know, how does my client look or how does the product look? And then. You know, the artist is looking at the lighting and the shadows and, you know, the composition. There, it, there's just so much, of course. No one's going to yeah. the same photos. And I think also it's sometimes as a photographer, you can really connect with people. Like I've walked out of a very short shoot. I've walked out of a two-hour shoot with someone mm-hmm. that we at that moment became good friends. Yeah. And now it's like the next time you talk, it's like a 10-year. It feels like you talk to a 10-year-old friend because you're, yeah, yeah. you're just going, you know, like music's a big part when I shoot. And I've always got something ridiculous going on. I've made a playlist. Wonderful. And... But um, I think what can happen is photographer sees something in the people that maybe they think is the real them. And they go, this photo is so sick because this is the real them. Mm -hmm. But then like whatever publication goes, no, no, no. We want to show them that we're marketing or we want to show like what the world wants to see. And also the other side is sometimes I I think a lot, I think, I think, the, the bigger, the more experienced and well-versed a model is, the more of a real feeling they have about how they look and how mm-hmm. they're going to be portrayed in of an course, image. Yeah. And usually they'll be hired for how they're going to be portrayed, right? Yeah. They get a little bit typecast. But it's interesting when you shoot shots for people that aren't as experienced in that and they want to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like I've taken pictures. I've never... I've never had a client come back and be like, I hate this. I want to redo the shoot. Mm -hmm. But I think every photographer can say that they've had, they've delivered photos that they might've been more proud of. Like they thought they were going to get a much more exciting reaction. Of course. And then the client's like, Ooh, I look like that or this person. And that happens. I would say 99% of the time that, because I mean, if you've ever had your photo taken, just anybody, Mm -hmm. you always seeing yourself in a photo is never how you see yourself in the mirror. It's just the way it is. It's so funny and like, especially with certain demographics that want to look a certain way. Yeah. Like, you know, like people that consider themselves to be professionally beautiful, mm-hmm. but like I've, I've had people come back and go, can you change the way I look? And I go, no, I don't. Yeah. I'll, I'll remove blemishes. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, mildly fix mediocre lighting. Mm-hmm. I might, you know, clean up the roots on their hair. But you're not going to change someone's weight. I'm not making the boots or, bigger, way yeah. smaller, mm-hmm. lips bigger. I don't do any of that. And, it first came about as an easy out because I was like, I'm taking a moral stand. I don't want to spend this much time in Photoshop, but really my moral stand sounded like it was based around the fact that I was all about preserving what people actually look like. Yeah. But now that I have the skill to do those things, now it actually is the moral stand where I'm of like, course, yeah. and it just yeah. ends up looking ridiculous. Cause the, the reality is, is they could easily just take that photo with their iPhone and use an app that would do it in two seconds. So then just don't. There was a huge outrage of, I remember a photo going around of Beyonce's leg really you know, poorly photoshopped and everybody was, you know, showing it and just how uh, the reality of so many of these photos, but especially with, with iPhones and Instagram is that we're seeing so much more raw, 
pho- photography that actually there it's just so easy to edit your photo now yeah. that the raw stuff is catching more attention it's catching more attention and it's been i was talking to a, a friend about this and you know she's a model is 30 she's she does a lot of big campaign work a lot of outdoor brands she's really great to work with and super dialed but we were talking about this and i was like i think you're coming into like the best time of your career which 15 years ago you might have realistically been looking at the end of your career a while ago oh, wow. but now i think we're seeing a lot more specifically on the woman's end and the female end where people want to see a 35 40 45 year old woman mm-hmm. 50 year old you know yeah. all all ages and before that was like ridiculous mm-hmm. Like it would be like Cindy Crawford, 22 yeah, years yeah, old, yeah. not a dimple on her body. Of course. And if, well, and one of my favorite cover photos ever was that magazine that I worked at the sister magazine of to it. It's Nouveau. So Nouveau had this beautiful, beautiful cover and she was an influencer with short gray hair. I forget her name, but just the most stunning, stunning woman. And she's, I mean, in her sixties and it just, it was beautiful. It's really gorgeous. It's and she, and I think Instagram kind of helps do that because this woman has uh, however many thousand followers that you, it, instead of following the 20 year old girl who looks good and everything, it's this elegant elderly woman who is making everything look beautiful. I think also there's something much cooler, whether people in my opinion want to admit it or not, exclusive is cool. And also I don't think financial exclusivity is very cool because especially now, like what does that even mean? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, you, you made a good stock tip. But I think when you look at, well, let's, let's make an easy example. Once upon a time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. when you see Brad Pitt with his shirt off, the guy was like 55. What like you look at him and you're like, that is hard to do. It is, it is not easy to do that. To look like that. To okay. look like that. Yeah, that is much more longer. impressive than a 22 year old male influencer. Who's like, do you want a six pack? And it's like, dude, you could be drinking like, beers every day eating McDonald's (laughs) and have a six pack. You're 22. Like you're good. But when someone's, you know, someone's older on in their life, like it is, it really shows about what they do with their day to day. For sure. When I see a 55 year old woman who's like taken really good care of herself, I'm like, Mm -hmm. that is super impressive because that shows how someone lives their life. That Mm -hmm. shows a a massive amount of discipline. And I don't even mean on a superficial level. I just, Mm -hmm. I like being around people that have their shit together and it just shows. It's interesting you say that because I, I think a lot of beauty is tied to health. I think, you know, when there's women saying, I want to age gracefully, mm-hmm. if, if you've had a really stressful life, you're just not going to age well. And if you've had a happy, positive life, you're going to age better. It's just the way it is. Ideally, yeah. And it's like, I think it's also personality based. Some people yeah. just thrive. Mm-hmm. Like, what do they say? Genetics, if you want something done quickly, give it to a busy person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you give it to someone who's nothing on their plate, it'll take two weeks. Or there's, oh, of a, there's a better version. And, and of that, I think but. we've all known that too. When you have a slow week and you get one thing done, you're like, whoa! But then when you have a busy week and you get twenty five hundred things done, you're like, okay, yeah. I've always been like, obviously, with my background, I've always been such like a big advocate of health and especially in performance. And I come from the age of coaching that was much stricter, like okay. where you would look at an athlete and go why are you in this shape right now? This is your job to not be in this shape. And, you know, amongst the coaching community, there's a big division about what's the best way to communicate. I think the best way to communicate is the best is the way that the athlete or client or whoever is most receptive. It's gotta be individual. And a lot of people I think forget that. And I think it's the same with photography. I think everybody has the right to find what they want to find. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. 100%. I think it can be odd when people are mismatched with brands because brands are trying to make themselves something they're not in such a massive mm-hmm. leap. But I, 
it's interesting too because you only have to talk to a number of people you know find your five best friends and ask them who the most beautiful person in the world is oh it's all over the place but yeah like totally and like everybody's and, and and that's one of the things you know you and i've had this talk a lot before about i've never been attracted to like homogenous groups yeah being we're similar in that way yeah like i don't ever want to hang out with a bunch of people that look like me and talk like me like i'm always around people or the only talk to people who who have the same music interest or yeah 100 like i like hanging out with people that are you know usually more intelligent than me but you know we have different Mm -hmm. understandings of different things Mm -hmm. and i'm a big personality so sometimes when i get going on some sort of stupid tangent i can Someone can cut you off and say, hey, how have you thought about this? And those are the people I really end up liking yeah. being around where Same. they're like, ah, I think you're kind of full of shit. And I'm like, maybe you are. Maybe I got <laughs> to back up. And yeah. I think that's, I think that's also really cool with art because, you know, me being a big aggressive personality, I might have another photographer come in the studio who's half my size and they can be like, yeah. move that light. I'm like, I don't want to move the light. And I'm like, you could try. And I move the light. I'm like, oh shit, you were right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's such a cool thing. Like everybody, well, you were talking about the masterclass with Ann Leibovitz and like, yeah. I didn't, I've seen a lot of her interviews. I've never yeah. seen her whole masterclass, but one of the things that's hilarious is, you know, we talked a little bit about the digital and the analog movement. Yeah. And originally I just found like the analog movement was so cheesy because I'm not someone who I don't like to romanticize the past. I think what it is, is there's, and I'm sure you know this, but there, there's just the idea that with digital, it is, you can take so many more shots and you can edit it in so many different ways. Whereas analog is just, you have to know what you're doing to shoot on analog. Well, the the reality is, is you can edit an analog just as much because most people just do high risk. Post-production. Yeah. But, but no, you're totally right. And you always, like you said, you always find someone who's going to be on the narrative you're on. So if you want to say digital is the best, you're going to find an amazing, and Annie Leibovitz is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, do you still shoot analog? She's like, I spent 30 years shooting Polaroids, and I upgrade my camera setup every time there's a new best camera. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. why wouldn't I want the, the the tools that give me the most freedom to create what I want to create? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you look at other people, and they're like, I've shot Hasselblad 6 by 6 my whole life. That's yeah. what I'm going to shoot. And you look at their portfolio and you're like, I see no problems here. Of course. And I mix around. I have a few digital cameras. I have a ton of analog cameras. And like, like lately I've been shooting like the shittiest Instax wide camera on the, the monochrome. And, and I'm just like, this is the coolest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll just go through and I'll go and spend like a hundred dollars at the camera store on like basically on a pla- film for a shitty plastic camera oh, with wonderful. like a horrible lens. <laughs> And I love it. And then other times I'll be like, oh, I need like 100 megapixels for this photo. And usually you never need that. But but yeah, I I thought it was really interesting just to hear her kind of quotes on that. I think think the same people that shoot amazing photos on analog could shoot it on digital and vice versa. I really do believe that. I also think there's a lot of people that justify, like we all want to prove why our work is better. Because everybody who shoots is, you're inevitably, you know, you get self-conscious. Of How course, do you not? And uh, it's all subjective. There's no, totally. there's no, there's no like ground to stand on where you're like, I know it's not like, yeah. you know, I was always really good at math and I loved it because you would walk out of a calculus exam knowing what you got on the exam. Cause you can do all your proofs. There's no f- proofs in photography. Exactly. It's yeah. like, yeah. and, um, but I, I think kind of like the whole, like I shoot analog because it's better. And it's like, well then just prove it. Just shoot better photos. If you shoot better photos with it, then you're better. Yeah. 
I don't. And I think any reasonable person will say that it's not that they shoot it because they're better. It's that they prefer it's, it's it or it's a different, yeah, it's a t- totally. Yeah. Different. And like, you know, like Fuji released a digital camera where you can't really review your photos and this and that. Oh, okay. I'm like, I just want the most capable camera mm-hmm. going forward. So we haven't talked a lot about coronavirus. Um, yeah. That's obviously added some challenges going forward. Are you, do you have plans to reopen the studio and shoot a lot more or are you going to stick more to street? What's kind of your, um, I've got a couple of e-com campaigns lined up and nice. uh, one campaign right now. And it looks like another campaign is coming down. So I'm just essentially shooting in a way that I follow all the legal guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, to be fully tra- exciting. <laughs> to be to be fully transparent, I I'm like the least concerned person about my own personal health. I'm more is everyone else comfortable? Does everyone else feel like I'm being respected? Yeah. You know, I want everyone else to feel comfortable and what makes of other course. people comfortable. I've not really had any moments where I was worried about it. You know, mm-hmm. worried about me getting sick. I'm the kind of person who does so much reckless stuff with my body anyway that I'm more lo- likely to drown cliff jumping. Um, I'm looking at that now because shooting in studio, I shot a couple e-com things where, you know, the studio is really big. You can mm-hmm. more than keep your, like I've kept yeah. 20 foot spacing, you know, the infinity walls basically set up, but essentially like all I do is throw on like a nine foot backdrop and I can just clear out the studio and I can be shooting mm-hmm. at like 150 millimeters far away yeah. and it's totally fine. And, and essentially I just make sure that, you know, we make sure the studio is always extremely clean, wipe down everything we stagger times that we use it. Cause I like to just be in the studio to be in the studio. Like mm-hmm. part of me having a studio is mm-hmm. I like to shoot in the studio all the time. It'll be like yeah. 10 at night. And I'm like, I got an idea and I'll go and set up lighting and just shoot for three or four hours and work on Which it. Which is, is such a, it's just such a fortunate thing to have. It's such a luxury. And yeah. like, and it's just, it's such a, it just allows you to learn so quickly because like I, I see photos every day that make me feel like I'm horrible. And then you rebuild your Everybody confidence. Does. Everybody, Everybody does. does. And then I, I can now go, Oh my God, that's so amazing. And then I'll go down and like reproduce that lighting. And mm-hmm. you know, I've like mannequin heads and stuff. It could look pretty creepy from an outsider, but, <laughs> uh, and I'll literally do full shoots. Wow. And, and that's, that's part of, to be honest, I think when you do shoot studio stuff and you do shoot things and, you know, shooting with uh, COVID, a lot of what maybe some people miss is the client's workflow. The easier the client's workflow is, the more eager they're going to be to work with you mm-hmm. because realistically it doesn't take the best photographer in the world to shoot e-com. You should have good communication. You should know your looks. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you have a client coming in at nine and your lighting's not ready to go, what are you doing? Yeah. In my personal opinion, because why would you want a producer and a stylist and hair and makeup and everybody sitting around for hours on end? And so I've always just made it my thing that I always just create an environment that I put in the work that I can do by myself already. Mm-hmm. And especially my early on shoots, I would go and essentially do the shoot before they came in, like the day before. And then when they came in, everything was dialed. So we have four lighting setups. I could transition lighting setups in a few minutes. It's already marked down. All the settings are ready to go. Um, And then, yeah, for COVID, it's it's been, I took a month off life, to be honest. I focused on my health. Yeah, Yeah, I shot a lot of film photos. I shot a lot of like six, four, five, like stuff that I want to turn into prints. The, the problem is, is when COVID first hit, it seemed exciting to shoot everything because it was new. <laughs> yeah. And now it just looks like a boring, quieter city. Yeah. But yeah. it was never really that quiet. Like, you know, a lot of the photos and the videos that me and good people I know have d- tried to do or done, a lot of it is kind of like, yeah, we, we made it look like there was less people in the street because the streets are still yeah. busy and stuff. Vancouver is rare in that, I mean, you go on the seawall or any sunny day, every inch of grass has 25 people on it somehow. It's just... It's, it's just going and like, yeah. you know, who knows what's right or wrong. Obviously like 
people should do their best to respect other people's boundaries. Mm -hmm. And and I I really feel for people that are at risk or who have lost someone or yeah, a hundred percent. And if, and if if you're putting, no one has the right to put someone else in harm way, you know, if you're going to go do something stupid, do something stupid. But Mm -hmm. it's like when I drive on the Coquihalla, if I'm driving at two in the morning by myself, I'm driving like an animal. If I'm driving during rush hour, I'm obeying all, you know, yeah, I think the other consideration during these times is that a lot of companies' budgets kind of went to shit. Yeah. Understandably, and right? It's going to be a major, major challenge that, I mean, this has so many butterfly effects that are just yeah. going to reverberate for years. So I, I just, I, I feel for every industry right now. I think a key thing to do is to figure out value added for clients. Inevitably, people's rates are going to take a bit of a hit, some of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a bad thing. I think if you are going to lower your rate, I think be very clear about what your rate is and why you are lowering it. Mm-hmm. And if it's during COVID, I think that's a valid reason to do it. Yeah. But I think also when brands hire you, you know, especially during a time when they need to fire other people, you should really bring in more value. And I like producing. So now when I talk to companies, I want to produce it. Mm-hmm. So rather than them going, well, do we have to hire someone to do this? I can bring the setup together in a COVID waste safe way. Mm-hmm. And that pro- provides a ton of value. I think what's neat too about you and, and being so curious about so many different things is that you, you kind of do open yourself up to, you know, yes, I can shoot, but I can also produce and I can also film. And, and that is, it's kind of a, a niche that a lot of people have done, but not everyone does. And I think to be able to offer that in these times is going to be beneficial to a lot of clients. Yeah, I think for sure. And I think like, there's always two ways I always kind of look at it. If it's not something that's sexy to shoot, sexy is in like, you know, it's something that you're excited to be a part of, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then it better pay well, Mm -hmm. or at least well enough. And if it's something that somebody doesn't have a lot of money, then I'm probably going to want a lot of freedom to make it into something that is very cool. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're Mm -hmm. like, ah, our budget isn't great. And I'm like, but then yeah. I, you got to trust me on this and we've got to make something that's really amazing. Because Which is it's valid because I know even lawyers who they say I'm expensive for corporate clients who are looking to get out of some, you know, mistake they did. Yeah. But if I'm going to work for free, it's going to be for the wrongfully convicted guy who has no money and lost his job and his reputation. <laughs> exactly. Right. And like, so if, it, if it's not going to be high paying, let's make it something that you're going to want to put in your portfolio and that's going to lead to more work. And, and it also comes down to the client. Like Vancouver is such a great place because, you know, it's, it's, it's a very small city in, in regards to like how it feels. Mm-hmm. And I think your reputation, it's everything everywhere, but I think it's really everything here. And if people, mm-hmm. if you can work with someone. It's a small, big city. So, yeah. Yeah. And if you work with someone and every problem they have, you're just the solution person. And I, I learned that building a training company where it's like mm-hmm. everyone in, in training, every client that comes to you other than athletes, a lot of times athletes do has unrealistic expectations. They don't understand how much work goes in. They don't want to pay as much as, you know, mm-hmm. all the same variables. And you just, you just develop a way of solving problems. And if you can do that with clients now, it's probably a really good time to get market share. It's probably a really yeah. good time to pick up new clients where you might be giving up to 50% discounts and it doesn't feel great, but it's still, the reality is, is those clients are probably going to end up, if they survive this, they're probably going to survive long-term. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you've got those extra 10 clients or two clients or whatever. Awesome.